Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We have, are in Romans chapter 14, right? And this is a huge chapter as we're working through the book of Romans. Uh, it's a place where Paul begins to practically apply what he has been teaching uh, as ramifications of the gospel and what it means to be a transformed Christian. And he's applying it now to a specific issue in the Roman church. And it centers on this idea of Christian liberty. Now, in that Roman church, you had Jews and you had Gentiles, and the Jewish Christians uh, had this heritage that was, that was rich to them in the Jewish law. And as a result, they, the, the Sabbath was an important observance. Uh, not eating meat or drinking wine that was you know, unclean, that wasn't kosher. It wasn't that they were vegetarians by you know, uh, choice. It was they were vegetarian by conviction because they couldn't get meat that was considered clean. And so they were abstaining from these areas. The Gentile Christians were participating, drinking wine, eating the meat. You know, one day is the same as another day, and it was causing problems for these Jewish Christians. And so uh, these issues that the Bible is not black and white on, that the Bible is gray, what the Bible, we might call disputable matters, matters of opinion where we, are, where we have freedom, we have Christian liberty. Um, how do we behave? How do we act uh, in these issues? And last week, in the verse 12 verses of chapter 14, we made the point that transformed Christians do not let differences of opinion destroy their unity in Christ. Now, it's important to understand we're talking about matters of opinion, disputable matters, things that the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt or thou shalt not, you know, that's our clear instructions from the Bible. These are things that are not essentials of the Christian faith. And one of the reasons why we did the creed this morning was because the creeds were developed in the history of the church for this very reason, to define for the church what are the essentials of the faith from which we need to be unified. Remember the statement I gave you from Augustine, or it's given credit to Augustine, that you know, in the essentials, unity. Uh, in uh, the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, right? 
But there are some essential things that the Bible and the creeds are examples of them. That's why we say them and recite them together to remind us what are the essentials. And we're joining in this rich history of church tradition that says these are the things that we stake our flag on. These are the hills that we die on. Other things are disputable matters. We don't die on those hills. Um, but for some people, it's hard because it's such a part of their heritage or for other reasons. And so Paul is talking to the weak and the strong. The weak are people, in this case, the Jewish Christians who felt like they needed to observe these things. The strong were those who felt like they had liberty. And what we pointed out last week is there are some very clear principles how we interact on matters where we disagree. We're to treat one another as God treats us, to accept one another, to welcome one another into our lives, into our homes, into our friendships and our acquaintanceships. We're to, to do to due diligence as Christians to um, look to the gospel and rely upon it and the word of God to inform our consciences and to, to shape how we live our lives. Um, once we're convinced that this is what is right for us. And how do we go about that? We go to the scriptures. We make sure that it's not a black and white issue, that it truly is disputable. Maybe we, we get counsel from spiritual leaders. We enter into dialogue with Christians who maybe believe differently than us, and we try to understand why have they arrived at the position that they have arrived on? Why, why does this believer, for example, drink alcohol? And, and I think, no, I can't. Or why can I smoke a cigar and another person says, no, I don't think you should. And, and I mean, there's a, just any number of issues, right? How we educate our children, how we raise our children, <laughs> whether we vaccinate our children. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on with our children nowadays. You know, how we recreate uh, and where we go for our leisure. Some Christians will enjoy going to a club and dancing the night away. Some of us have no rhythm and we think it's ungodly, right? So, no. <laughs> Uh, right? and, and so we just have all these different issues. Um, one, one lady will wear clothing of a certain style. Another one will think it's immodest and not wear it. Uh, I mean, we just have a ton of these types of things. And so we look to the gospel to inform our consciences. We, once we have settled the matter that it is truly not a thou shalt or thou shalt not, it's not something that the gospel commands or prohibits, it's in that area of gray, it's a disputable matter. We've searched the scriptures, we've consulted with spiritual leaders and other people, we become fully convinced that this is a disputable matter, then we go to the Holy Spirit and ask, okay, now what about me? Because just because something is permissible doesn't mean that I'm to be involved in it. There may be a good reason for me not, for my own personal spiritual health, to not be involved in that activity, okay? I don't dance because it's not good for me to be mocked by other people, right? Because I'm so bad at it. It's just not good for my self-esteem or whatever. You know, now that's a lighthearted, but you get what I mean here. There are some things that we just can't do um, because it's not good for us, whereas it's perfectly fine for someone else. But at the end of the day, as we pointed out, as, as the passage closed, we do what we do because we know one day we will stand before Jesus Christ. So can we participate in this activity in a way that honors Jesus? That's our standard. Well, that's last week. This week, we're going to dwell on this idea from the last half of the chapter, that Christian liberty will test the depth of our spiritual maturity and our love of God's people. You know, these issues have a tendency to, to divide even the, the strongest Christians. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on the book of Romans, 
he, uh, he tells the story of um, the Par- uh, Joseph Parker's. I pick, yeah, Joseph Parker's on the left and Charles Spurgeon on, on the right. These were two famous English pastors, so famous that the reporters would come to their churches, camp out, transcribe their sermons, and put them in the newspaper the next week. And, and Joseph Parker and Charles Spurgeon, different denominations, different backgrounds, but they had a deep friendship and they began to work together. Charles Spurgeon had a huge burden for orphans. He gave most of his money to orphanages, which he started there in the London area. And Joseph Parker got his church behind it. They gave offerings and they worked together. Uh, Joseph Parker planned a special meeting uh, one night, and he had lined up Charles Spurgeon to be the main speaker. He was famous, and so people would flock just because Charles Spurgeon was there. Well, shortly before the meeting was to take place, Charles Spurgeon sent a letter to Joseph Parker and backed out. And in the letter, it was clear that okay, something's going on here. His reasoning was just very obscure, and it was very vague. And that's, that just wasn't Charles Spurgeon to be vague. And so Joseph Parker went to him and asked him what was going on. And finally, Charles Spurgeon told him that he could not participate with him and be on the stage with him due to Parker's lack of spirituality in attending the theater. (laughs) And that was just, no, I can't do that. Now, this is ironic because Spurgeon was often criticized for smoking cigars. He was so well known that they actually created a Spurgeon cigar and they sold it with his branding and and everything else. People made money off of him. Once he was confronted about it and he said, smoking cigars is sin only if you smoke in excess. And so then of course, what's the natural question for that? And then person asked, what is excess? And Spurgeon said, if you try to smoke more than two cigars at the same time, okay? So, uh, Uh, I don't smoke them because my wife doesn't like to kiss me anymore if I smoke a cigar, so uh, I'd only do it if she goes out of town. You know, in verses 13 to 23, uh, Paul uh, illustrates for us why the exercise of our Christian liberty will test the depths of our spiritual maturity and our love for God's people. And so what he does here is he first is going to give us this overarching gospel application And then, at the middle of the passage, he's going to give us this crucial gospel motivator, this great theological and gospel truth that should motivate us to think about this and to prayerfully consider how we live on disputable matters. Let's let's start with the gospel application. The exercise of our Christian freedom is limited by how it impacts other believers. And verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Let's stop right there. This is a summary verse of the previous 12 verses. He's talked about judging one another in the previous 12 verses. It's easy for both groups to judge and condemn another, but the weak are especially susceptible to judging and condemning those who are Uh, are strong or who are exercising their freedom in a particular area. Because you see, the weak, for the person who is weak, this matter is a matter of sin. They see this area of disputable matters oftentimes not as gray, but black. This is sin. One One of the best examples in Christianity comes around the area of alcohol. 
you know? And so for many of us, we, look at, we go to scriptures, we say, this is a disputable matter. You may or you may not, depending upon various reasons, partake of alcoholic bed, uh, beverages in a responsible matter. Others know this is sin. And so for the person who sees that area as sin, it's very easy for them to begin become judgmental and to start condemning the other person. And so much of the first 12 verses are really geared towards the weak person. But beginning in the second half of verse 13, Paul changes his focus. And from this point on, he really has the strong more in line. He starts by just telling these weak folks, hey, listen, there are many more important matters in the kingdom of God than the speck that's in your brother's eye. But the situation is what it is. So strong people, how do we live in light of this? He says, rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. He's speaking to the strong here, primarily the strong, who through their knowledge of God's word, their spiritual maturity in disputable matters, they have the power, the ability to be an obstacle rather than a help to the person who is struggling with this matter. So underlying Paul's teaching here is a, a simple recognized truth that our actions can greatly affect other Christians. And so Paul says, for the strong, our actions can easily become a stumbling block or a hindrance. In other words, the person who believes I have liberty in this area, for us to exercise that liberty, we have the ability to be a, a hindrance, a stumbling block to someone else. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a stumbling block, to hinder, or some of your translations say to offend your Christian brother. Uh, we, we need to recognize something that, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek. That was the common language of the day. And the underlying Greek words that we say are, you know, offend or grieve or stumbling block, they do not necessarily have the same biblical, the biblical meaning is not necessarily the same as Webster's Dictionary. So, you know, for example, when I say something like, uh, you know, that offends me, that normally means, what? Well, I don't like that, right? I don't like that. Um, you know, that, wow, you know, what, you know, that, that tie that you're wearing, whew, ugh, that's offensive, right? You know, it's, it's loud or what? That's a frivolous example. But we have other examples of things that might offend me. But this principle is not concerned with whether or not another believer doesn't like what you do in this disputable matter. Um, your cigar offends me, you know, Charles Spurgeon, is not a reason necessarily for Charles Spurgeon to stop smoking. Because that's not what the word offense means. That's not what a stumbling block is. So what is it? A, a stumbling block is a disputable matter becomes a stumbling block when it causes a brother or sister in Christ to sin against his or her conscience or defile his or her Christian growth with guilt, shame, or fear due to the strong's persuasive actions or words. Okay, this, we are not at, we are not hostages to simple personal preferences, okay? But we do have to take into account someone else's position if our position is enticing them to sin against their conscience. And that's that word in hindrance there is like the idea of laying a trap for somebody that ensnares them. 
If our actions and our exercise of Christian liberty are going to ensnare someone in an activity that to them is sin because it's a violation of their conscience, we have now put a stumbling block in front of them. And Paul says, no, this, this should not happen. So our brother is made to stumble, is grieved, they're hindered, they're offended when our activities persuade him to sin against his conscience. Now, we have a great example of this in the New Testament. There's a case study in Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem Council was called together. Why? Because Paul had gone and begun to plant churches in other cities, and he was preaching to Gentiles, and Gentiles were coming to Christ. And there was a group of of Hebrews who were saying, listen, these Gentile Christians, they must follow the, the Mosaic law, especially in certain areas, the Sabbath, their diet, uh, for the men, circumcision. You got to get circumcised if you're going to believe in Christ and be a, be a Christian. And so Paul, you know, he just calls the question, you know, he's probably a lot like Charles Spurgeon, real blunt. He comes to Jerusalem and he brings Titus with him, a living, breathing, walking example of a Gentile Christian who has not been circumcised. And he looks at him and says, well, you tell him, I'm not telling him, <laughs> you know. What are, we, what are we supposed to do here with Titus? And so the elders get together in Acts 15, and they consult with one another. And after consulting and praying, they reach a decision. And James, the brother of Jesus, announces that decision in Acts 15. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues." Now listen, this is interesting. Let's go back to that list of things that they said. Okay, Gentiles, uh, Titus doesn't have to be circumcised. Men, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to observe the Sabbath, but there are a few things here. Now look at that list of things. How many of those things would you say they are talking here about God's moral law, something that transcends the ages? How many of those things there are a matter of God's moral law? Hold up a finger. One, two, three, what? One, one, yeah, most of you have one, yeah, one, one. One is a matter of God's moral law, the sexual immorality, the Ten Commandments, for example, okay? These other matters were part of the Jewish culture. They're not moral law. This, is, this would fall under the category of Peter's vision that he had where they, they send down on the sheet and, you know, take, eat, it doesn't matter, go ahead, right? That, that was for the old covenant. Now we're in the new covenant. You could go ahead. But notice the rationale that the apostles and the elders give for why in those other areas, what we would call disputable matters, why they're telling the Gentile Christians, listen, in those areas also do not participate. He says, for from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, hey, Gentiles, the Christian faith, it is grounded in the Hebrew faith that we were raised with. It is in all of the cities of the Roman Empire. Paul would go into a city, into a synagogue. He would begin to preach and teach the gospel. Jews would come to Christ. Gentile converts to Judaism would come to Christ. 
they would sooner or later get kicked out of the synagogue and the church at Corinth would start or the church at Thessalonica would start. But in these early days, the overwhelming majority of the church was Jewish and a small percentage was Gentiles. And so their rationale, their explanation is, hey, fellas, you've got to take into account that Jews and the Jewish people in every city, they need to be one to Christ. And these Jewish converts, they have very tender consciences in these matters that we're speaking of here. And so for their sake, so that you not stumble, so that you not be destroyed, so that they don't start the Christian walk and, and then ultimately come to a point and say, well, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I can't have anything to do with that. And it's over one of these disputable matters. It's, it's not an essential of the faith. Give ground here. This is a matter of Christian liberty. The apostles' decision was really very much in line with the majority and the major portion of our text. In fact, we need to stop there for a, a second um, and talk about the structure of our text. I haven't pointed this out in a long time. I haven't pointed this out since, I think, the book of Ecclesiastes. What we have in this passage, uh, there is a literary form being used by Paul. It was very common in the Hebrew world. Um, it was called a chiasm, or, or we might call it reverse parallelism. It was a technique used in writing so that you could ultimately discern what was the central key point that everything was culminating in and everything else is revolving around that pivot point. And we have here, as we've had in several places in Romans, Paul using a chiasm. I think I have it up on the screen for you. You can see how it looks, right? You, you have a, a, an initial point that is made, and then another, and then another, and then the central point is there, and then everything then reverses, and that, you know, don't, letter C is once and then, then B and A. So A, B, C, D, C, B, A. You see that structure? And that's important to see in the Bible because if you don't understand that they're writing, and for example, in a passage like this, you'll end up concluding the, the wrong point that is being made in the passage. And so what we have here is a chiasm and all these points leading up to the central one, which we're going to look at in just a moment. That's our gospel motivator. Verses 17 and 18 is our gospel motivator here. But everything leading up to that and everything trailing from behind that is all communicating one idea, that our exercise of Christian liberty is limited because it affects other believers. And the thing that is the limiting factor, the primary limiting factor in our exercise of Christian liberty is our love for one another. He says in verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one from whom Christ died. If you jump to the other side of the pivot point in verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Again, he's coming right back to this idea of love and what is good for the other person. Do not, verse 20, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Love compels us to put our brother's spiritual welfare before our freedom. Love compels us to curtail our enjoyment of Christian freedom for the spiritual growth of our brother when our liberty is encouraging that person to sin against their conscience. The Corinthian church, like the Roman church, had the same issue at play. And Paul responds to 
the contingent in the Corinthians church that was saying, hey, we're free in Christ. Everything is permissible. That was a slogan that they had developed. And so Paul in his response takes their slogan. He says, everything is permissible. Yeah, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. How is it loving to participate in a disputable matter when it entices or tempts your brother to sin against their conscience? How is it loving to ever entice our brother to sin? It's not. Absolutely it's not. Now, is this inconvenient for us? Sure it is. Absolutely. But there are bigger matters at stake here. And this is what is brought out in that pivot point, in that central truth and central verses of this chiasm, right? These instructions from Paul that he's giving us, these aren't just matters of opinion. These instructions are grounded in the gospel. They're grounded in who we are in Christ and our mission to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. This shapes, this informs our exercise of Christian liberty to, to overlook this motivator, this theological truth, is to end up going the way of everything is fine, everything is permissible. You see, these truths constrain us. They shape our Christian liberty. So let's look at verse 17 and 18. Final point this, mess, this morning. This is our gospel motivator. This is that theological truth that shapes everything. It, 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 everything flows out of this idea, Paul says, that kingdom values are more important than personal freedom and pleasure. He says, for, so why, why do you constrain these things? Why do you not put a stumbling block in front of your brother and exercise your liberty even though it's a disputable matter? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now here's something that's interesting. This is the first time in the book of Romans that Paul uses the word kingdom. And, and so we have to pay attention to this, right? He's giving us a definition of the kingdom of God. And what's interesting is that he gives us a Trinitarian definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a matter of Christian liberty. Instead, it is righteousness, it is peace, it is joy in the Holy Spirit that defines the kingdom of God in us. Now, some will come to this passage and they'll say, wait a second, what Paul is getting at here is that morally, ethically, you know, the results of our salvation is that we will live rightly with our fellow man, justly, and that we will, we will be at peace with one another, that we will have a disposition of joy. And, and there's a, a degree of validity to that, right? As the gospel takes hold in our lives, yes, these things occur. There's a horizontal aspect to our salvation in our relationships with one another. But I think Paul is hitting on something much more weighty here that syncs with the vast, overwhelming uh, message that has been in the book of Romans and what he's taught us through the book of Romans and this idea of righteousness and peace and joy. You know, in the Bible, the kingdom of God 
is defined and characterized in many different ways. But for us, at the personal, the most intimate levels of our lives, it is this Trinitarian work of God that Paul describes in our lives where his dominion over us is established and his presence in our lives becomes this all-consuming passion and presence that we cannot avoid. The kingdom of God in our lives, when we know it's growing and it's, and it's here, it is this righteousness, this peace, this joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's Trinitarian, right? It's the righteousness of God, the Son, that we now have received through faith. It is the, this righteousness that establishes peace between us and God the Father. I mean, we're born into this life as sinners, totally incapable of pleasing God. We are at war with God. Newsflash, we are not born good people. We are born of our father the devil, Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins, completely incapable of pleasing God in anything spiritually related. Can't do it. We can be considered a nice guy, nice gal by our people at work. We can be a good moral person. We can pay our taxes. We can help society. We can do all of these good civic things. And none of it counts as one bit of righteousness because our sinfulness is so deep that our motives completely contaminate and pollute every good thing that we ever do before Christ. This is how we're born, in need of Christ, in need of the righteousness of Christ. You know, last week, I, I referred to Romans chapter 4. When we were talking about how do we determine disputable matters, whether something is disputable, and, and in an earlier portion of the chapter, it says we're to become fully convinced. And Romans 4 uses that same expression, fully convinced in our mind, and it was Abraham. Remember that? Uh, last week, if you were here, Abraham received the promises of God, and, and he believed God. He was fully convinced in his mind that God was trustworthy, that God was faithful, that his promises were true. He believed that. And the Bible says this just determined his, his actions, his attitudes, his faith was then counted as righteousness. So as you continue on in chapter four, it then says, Paul makes the point, and this is what's happened for you. Because Christ has died on the cross, he came, he lived this life that we were to live, he took our place, and through his life and through his death, we can turn to him and we can trust and believe and put our faith in him and receive through faith his righteousness. We who can never be righteous, for salvation is not of works, none of us can be good enough, it's faith. And so at the end of that passage, which is the beginning of chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, in light of all that Christ has done and, and us being related to Christ through faith, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been declared righteous by God, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the kingdom of God in our lives? It's right here at this most fundamental level that our heavenly Father has declared us righteous and at peace with him because of Jesus Christ and our trusting in him. And what does this result in? The Holy Spirit now indwells us and he transforms us so that we begin to exhibit the, the fruit of the Spirit Right? of which one of those fruits is joy. 
joy in the face of tribulation and trials and persecution, as we saw in Romans chapter 8. This reminder, right here in the middle of this passage of the gospel, the kingdom of God in us that is taking over our lives, this truth shapes and informs how we exercise Christian liberty. It has to. If it doesn't, we're not being true to who we are in Jesus Christ. And so as we close this passage out, he gives us some practical ways that we can see how this passage shapes Christian liberty. Verse 21 tells us we'll avoid those things that hinder God's kingdom work in another believer. He says in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. When we are shaped by the gospel and our right relationship with Christ, our love for one another is such that we will just simply say, you know, it's free, but I'm not going to do this when it causes my brother to sin against their conscience. I cannot damage him in that way. I'm gonna run away from it. I'm gonna say no. Now listen, you may be with somebody else, another group of people, and it's not an issue at all, fine. But when you're with this person or these people, you have to, to curtail that liberty, that freedom. Okay. Secondly, because of the gospel, there's no need for us to flaunt our freedom to others or be right on disputable matters. He says in verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Hey, Christian, church, I got something really important to tell you. We are under no obligation to vomit out onto Facebook every opinion and idea that we have. We don't have to do that. Right? We don't have to engage in arguments. We don't have to, you know, set the record straight all the time. It is perfectly okay to keep our mouths shut. It is. We don't have to flaunt what we know to be a matter of Christian freedom or what the scripture, we don't have to flaunt that. It's perfectly okay to keep our opinions to ourselves. Why? Because we're completely free in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We have been approved and welcomed and accepted by God the Father. We do not have to say a word in order to get somebody else's acceptance. We are loved by the creator of the universe because we have the righteousness of Christ. So putting somebody in their place because of their thinking on a particular issue does not make us more admirable in the eyes of God. It doesn't make us more loved. We're as loved as we're ever going to be because we are in Christ Jesus. And this frees us up. We have his affirmation. We don't need the affirmation of other people. We have his approval. We don't need the approval of, of the crowd or of the people. We don't need that. It's perfectly okay for us to not be seen as right on any particular issue and mature. We don't have to prove that. We can just keep our mouths shut. We don't have to flaunt what we know. We don't have to flaunt our Christian liberty. 
We can just smile and give words of grace and move on. Because these things aren't in the Nicene Creed. <laughs> these aren't essentials. So why make them essential? For one final application. Finally, right? If there is any doubt, if there is a doubt in your life that disturbs when it comes to a disputable matter, if you have doubt and it's disturbing your peace that you have with God, if it's disturbing the joy that you have in the Holy Spirit, then run away. Don't do it. If, it, if you have doubt about something, play it safe. Don't participate. Verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The kingdom of God in us is a kingdom that comes about through faith. The just shall live by faith. And so if something is not done out of faith, Paul says, don't do it. It's a disputable matter that is not fully convinced in your mind. Don't do it. May God add his blessing to these instructions. Heavenly Father, may we be secure in who we are in Christ. And for the one who's here this morning who perhaps doesn't know Christ, Lord, the person who maybe is listening through the live stream, who looks at their lives and are pretty satisfied with their goodness, may your spirit bring about a a feeling of conviction that all is not right, that we are not born in a way that is righteous, that gets your favor, that we all sin and fall short of your glory. So Father, would you work in the heart of that person who, who is yet to see the light of Jesus Christ? Would you open their eyes? Would you give them a heart that is convinced of their own sin and their own need of your grace in Jesus? And may they come to know you even this week. And Lord, for those of us who are Christians, who there are so many different things in our world that can divide us, that can disrupt our unity, would you give us the grace that we need to relate to one another in the love of the gospel? Lord, would you help our love for one another, whether we are, are weak or strong on any particular issue, and we can flip-flop depending upon the issue, would you give us the grace we need to look at our Christian brother and to love them and be at peace with them, even though we may not agree on one particular issue or another. May we see that our unity in Christ means that we have so much more in common with one another, that as members of the body of Christ, there's so much more that we have in unity with one another than the few things that we may differ on that can create division. Lord, thank you for the unity that we have here at Covenant Church. Would you continue to build that unity, making us one mind, one accord, focusing on the main thing, keeping those main things the main thing, being used by you to reach a city for Jesus Christ. It's for his glory I pray these things. Amen.